You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew. We're calling Firm Foundation. With this week's message, here's education pastor Nolan Smith. Well, when I was in college, uh, one of my favorite things to do was to go over to the rec center on campus. And, uh, and I'd go over there and play basketball. There was always uh, guys playing basketball so you could jump into a pickup game just about any time. And there was one particular group of guys that occasionally made their way over there to play. And it was the school basketball team. And, and so they would come over and just kind of hone their skills on us normal guys and, uh, and wanted to just see how long they could just keep beating us, you know, game after game. And so what, what we got, non-basketball players like to do was try and figure out, can we find the right combination of five guys to actually take them down? Um, not very often. So, uh, so I, one, one such afternoon, I'm at the rec and, and uh, find myself on the court with some guys. We're playing against uh, the basketball team. And, and so we're kind of figuring out, okay, who's going to guard who, as, as if it matters. And, and so I'm, I find myself guarding this guy named Nate. And, and so Nate is somebody who, because I worked for the athletic department, I, I had crossed paths with Nate. We'd, we'd had conversations over the years and, and grown to be what you might call casual friends, right? So I'm thinking, if there's one guy out here who might go easy on me, it'd be Nate. I don't know why I thought that. And, and so at one point during this basketball game, Nate gets what's called a breakaway. So a breakaway is when a player gets the ball and there's a clear path between them and the basket they're trying to score on. They get, you know, a free shot. So Nate gets the ball at one end of the court on this breakaway and starts, starts running towards the other end. And I, I find myself at a certain position on the court where I, I look and I quickly do this calculation and I think, I have the angle. I can get in between Nate and the basket. So I'm going to do it. And I turn and I run to get in between Nate and the basket. And sure enough, I did have the angle. I got in between Nate and the basket. And so uh, I get to about half court and I turn and get into a defensive position. And so here I am in front of Nate when I realize I don't have a plan. And I didn't grow up playing organized basketball, so I was never coached in this situation. I don't have instincts that kick in that tell me, okay, here's what you're supposed to do now. I don't know. And I'm just standing in front of Nate going, what's next? And, and I, the, good, the good news was that I'm standing around half court thinking, I've got time to figure it out. So whatever happens, I, I've got some time to, to, to calculate, to figure out what I'm going to do. And, and just about that time, I look down and Nate plants his front foot in such a way as if to communicate, I no longer intend to run, I'm going to go airborne. And I'm thinking, that's strange. What a weird decision to make. And then simultaneously, Nate picks up the ball as if to say, I don't need to dribble anymore. Instead, I'm going to throw the ball back behind my head with sinister intentions. And I'm thinking, oh no, this is bad. Why is he doing this right now? And so as I'm processing all of this, I don't really have time to, uh, to come up with a better plan. Because what I should have done was make a business decision whereby I turn and run out of the way saying, you got this one, I'll get you next time, right? That's what I should have done. Should have done that in that moment. Uh, I, I didn't do that. Instead, I think, I'll jump with him. <laughs> I know, hindsight's 2020. okay? 
So, so, so I, I plant my feet and, and start to jump. Now, realize, Nate already has about six inches on me height-wise, okay? Add on another six or so inches in the vertical leaping department, and he's got a sizable advantage on me, in case you didn't know that already. And so I jump straight up with my hands above my head. And the thing about getting dunked on is that it's the worst thing that can happen to you on a basketball court. It's just, it's the worst thing. You, you never want to get dunked on. So here I am, midair, hands above my head, with this giant guy bringing the ball forward with the force of a thousand suns over my head into the basket, slamming the ball, and I realize I'm not at half court. I'm under the basket. And as the ball goes through the basket, I think it hits me on the head, which is adding insult to insult at this point, and, and then I fall backwards onto my back, flat on the floor, and it feels like all thousand people or however many people are in this building from all corners of the building stop what they're doing and are looking and laughing at me. That's what it feels like. Might even be true. And so here I lay on the floor and I'm thinking, man, there's some things I wish I'd known before. Number one, I wish I had known where I was on the court when this all happened. Number two, I wish I'd recognized that the discrepancy between my size and athleticism and Nate's was a little bit bigger than I realized. And three, I wish I'd known that Nate was going to be so willing to forego our friendship <laughs> in pursuit of rec center glory, right? And I'm laying on my back humiliated, thinking I wish I'd known these things. Now today, we're going to read from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and what we're going to see is that there is some information that we really need to know in order to navigate this life well. And, and we're going to be reading from chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. And at this point, we recognize that Jesus is really at the end of this Sermon on the Mount. This is sort of the beginning of the end, the conclusion to this sermon. So he's going to leave us with some closing thoughts to the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins that here in verse 13, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so the picture is simple enough, right? The metaphor is there is this narrow, difficult path, and it leads to what Jesus calls life. And on the other hand, there is this wide, easy path, and it leads to what Jesus calls destruction. Now, the, the, the metaphor is clear, but what does he mean by all of these words? What does he mean by, by enter into, and what does he mean by, by walk these paths and, and, and life and destruction? What do all these words mean? So let's start then with the question of, of enter into what? What is he talking about entrance into? And when we recognize the context of this, this sermon and what Jesus has been saying all along is, is that what Jesus is really talking about is entrance into the kingdom of God. And so when he invites us to enter into the kingdom of God, we have to know that this is not a physical relocation. It's not Jesus saying, so gather all of your things and physically pick them up and, and move and, and go to this new place. No, the kingdom of God is a, is a transcendent spiritual kingdom. And so rather than a physical relocation, what Jesus is talking about is really this sort of spiritual change of citizenship. And that's what he's inviting us into. 
Now, here's the beauty of Jesus' words, and, and really the, the Bible as a whole, is that Jesus can say one thing. He can say this, this one brief, simple sentence, but he can mean a lot of things within that. There can be a whole lot of meaning in one thing that Jesus says. And so we can interpret what Jesus is saying. We can, we can mine that for the information available. But we have to know that it's possible to pull the wrong information from it, right? To, to find something that's not actually there, that's not what Jesus really meant. Because it's possible for us to read Jesus' words and say, well, there's a deeper meaning here. And so what I think Jesus means is this. And, and, and when we do that, we, we might err in, in maybe trying to see what Jesus is saying to agree with us. That there's something we want to believe, we want Jesus to be saying, and so we find a way to, to sort of bend Jesus' words or, or interpret them in such a way that they make sense according to our beliefs, what, what we want it to say. This is a practice that we would call eisegesis. That's the, the sort of fancy seminary word, is, is that you are, you are uh, practicing eisegesis by reading into a text something that you want to be there. So when you, when you come to the words of Jesus and you think, well, this is a, this is, there's some layers to this, and what I think it means is what I already believed. He's, he's affirming what I already believed. Then you have to be careful that you're not reading your own beliefs, your own thoughts, into Jesus' words. So rather than eisegesis, what we want to do is exegesis, which is a, a fair treatment of, of the words of Scripture. We want to find what Jesus really does mean, and we're not trying to get it to agree with us. In fact, what we should be doing is making sure that our interpretation agrees with the rest of Scripture. That's how we accurately understand Jesus' words. And so what Jesus is saying here is layered. I believe there are, there are multiple layers to Jesus' words in this metaphor. And so the question then is, what does he mean by this? So when Jesus says, enter into the kingdom, I think it's easy for us to read that and go, oh, enter into the kingdom. That, that sounds like what he's talking about is, is salvation, right? That he's talking about what, the, the phrase that we use is going to heaven, which that phrase in and of itself is not one that's really uh, true of Scripture. It's one that we sort of uh, adopted in our culture. But, but what we mean by that is somebody becomes a Christian, and when they die, they go to heaven. And so we, we talk about salvation and, and read Jesus' words here about entering the kingdom, and we think, so is that what he's saying? Is he talking about entering the kingdom? Is he talking about becoming a Christian and going to heaven? Or does Jesus mean something else? Not about salvation, but about how we experience life, like a qualitative experience of life, either here in this world or a difference in experience in eternal life. So is he talking about salvation or is he talking about some sort of experience of life? And I think the answer is yes. Yes. The, you see, I, I think Jesus can speak about multiple levels of truth at the same time. There are multiple things going on in what Jesus is saying. And I'll use another passage as an example to show this. Because in Matthew 19, we get this. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me 
will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So this is a passage similar to our Matthew 7 passage about the difficulty, as he says, of entering the kingdom. And his specific point here is about how a rich person's worldly treasure will be their greatest obstacle in their pursuit of a heavenly treasure, right? But I think at a deeper level, he's talking about the difficulty that any person, rich or poor, would have in abandoning the tangible comforts of this world and abandoning their self-sufficiency, their independence, to say, I need God. And so this passage then is about both salvation and about the experience that salvation brings. Verse 29, Jesus says to the disciples that they will be rewarded for their sacrifice, that there will be something different about their experience of eternal life because of their sacrifice. As if to say, if you didn't sacrifice, you would still have the eternal life, but you wouldn't have that different experience, that higher level, that that reward. He says, and you will receive eternal life. We see two two of those things happening at the same time, both of them, these two separate, though related, results of the same thing, trusting Jesus. So here Jesus says, if you trust me enough to abandon the vanity of this world, then you'll receive a heavenly reward. And at the cross, Jesus says, if here you would trust that I bore the burden of your sins and could exchange for your sin my righteousness, give my righteousness to you, That when I died, I paid the penalty for your sin. And when I rose from the grave, I gave you eternal life. And so we see the same event, trusting Jesus, resulting in multiple outcomes. I always used to ask my students, what is God's will for you? And I would ask this question so many times, so often. I talk about it so often that when I'd ask the question, there were always students that could tell me what I was looking for. They could always answer Uh, with what I was looking for, because I would talk about this so often. I'd say, what what is God's will for you? What does he desire for you more than anything? And the answer is he wants us to trust him. And we see this in John chapter 6, verse 40, where Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. What does God want for you? To trust him. To trust in Jesus and receive eternal life. So trusting Jesus then first results in that outcome of our eternity, that it gives us eternal life. But trusting in Jesus each and every day with our lives also changes the experience of our lives. So when we come back to his words in Matthew 7 about the wide and the narrow paths, we see that he offers what he calls life. And this, I believe, means both a new destiny for our eternity, where we will spend eternity, 
and also the opportunity to live a redeemed life that we can experience even here and now, and which will carry over into eternity. So to state it more simply, Jesus' offer of life is an offer to transform our lives now and give us life in the new creation with him for eternity. And this, this invitation, though, is through a narrow, difficult path. And yet we've always said that the gospel is easy, right? All you have to do is accept that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That, that, that it's not about your performance. It's not about your good works. It's not about doing more good than you have sin. In fact, it's a decision that is so simple that if you've never made the decision to trust Jesus, never made the decision to say, Jesus, I trust that you took my sin to the cross and that you have given me your righteousness so that I can stand before God and, and be clean of all of my sin and that you died the death that I couldn't die and that you rose again to give me eternal life. If you just trust that, then you'll have eternal life. It's that simple that you could even do it right here and now where you sit. It's simple. And it's a decision that will result in eternal life with him. So why does he say the path is a difficult one? In some ways, I think it's difficult to believe that it's that simple. I think some of the difficulty is involved in recognizing that really it's easy to believe that how I live my life will dictate whether or not I get into heaven. That's easy to believe. It's intuitive. It's what all the religions of the world teach, that if you're good, if you live a good life, you can earn your way into heaven, into favor with God. That's easy. It's difficult to say, wait a minute, no, I can't do that. Like, I can't live a good enough life to earn righteousness. That's difficult. And, and Jesus has spent passage after passage in this very sermon telling us, this is what you've been told. You think it's about works, and it's not. So part of the difficulty of the narrow path is simply believing you can't earn it. It's in believing that it's a free gift, that your eternal destiny is not determined by your life. Your eternal destiny is determined by Jesus' death and resurrection. That can be difficult. But then this too is part of the difficulty, that it's only Jesus. That's why the path is narrow because it's exclusive. Only Jesus can give you this. In John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus tells us, I am the only way to life. That if you wanna to come to the Father, if you wanna be restored in right relationship with your creator, it is only by the work of Jesus and what he does on the cross. That's narrow. That's not a wide path. You can't find this just anywhere. You can only find it in him. And every Christian knows what it's like to walk into sin, knowingly walking into sin, into rebellion, saying, you know what? I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I want to. We know that feeling of, of active, actively rebelling against God, going back to sin, maybe even spending a season of life doing this, and then feeling a distance between us and God. And the reason is because there is a distance between us and God. But I want to be clear, because I am not talking about forfeiting your salvation. I don't mean that when you walk into sin that you have now forfeited your salvation and said, you know what, I'm not a Christian anymore because I'm going to do this. Nor 
Have you revealed some deeper truth about yourself that you didn't know that you were actually never a Christian to begin with because only a Christian or only a non-Christian would go back into sin knowingly? That's not true either. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the distance that we can put between ourselves and God when we sin. It's a distance in relationship. We call it fellowship, that we could have fellowship with God to be close with him And when we sin, we put that distance between us. And it's the same with any relationship, right? That that you've had friendships where either because of physical distance or maybe some sort of argument that you've had with this person, that you grow apart, you feel like we're not as close as we used to be. It's because you're not. And it doesn't mean you're not friends anymore. It just means that there's a distance between you. You don't experience that closeness that you once did. And we can do that with God. Because the reality is salvation that Jesus offers, it's not just saved from eternal separation from our creator, we're also saved from the present separation of our creator because we can experience that too. And so when we actively sin, we put that distance between us and God. We turn from him, we walk away from him, moving towards what Jesus calls destruction. And it's a pattern that we even see in James 1, where James talks about the ways that we are led away, lured by our own desires. And we move towards sin, and then we sin, and we stay in sin, then we move further and further away from the source of life, and we go towards what James calls death. It doesn't mean that we no longer are Christians. It doesn't mean we no longer have a hope of eternity with God. It just means that we've put a distance between us and God. We're no longer experiencing his fellowship, and we could be. That's what Jesus saved us from. So you might call this lifestyle, a lifestyle defined by this pursuit of God through obedience to his word and a rejection of the sin that would put a distance between us and him. You might call that lifestyle discipleship. And so this daily ongoing pursuit of God through obedience to him, this discipleship, it's difficult It's difficult to obey God all of the time. It's difficult to to lay aside our desires in pursuit of God's desire, to lay aside our will and embrace God's will. That's difficult, but it leads to closeness with God, to fellowship, what Jesus also calls life. So the narrow path is hard because to experience the transformation of life here and now Right? To experience that change in the quality of our life here and now and to receive that reward when we stand before him in eternity requires that life of discipleship. And it's difficult. The path then that leads to destruction is easy. It's easy to believe that you can live a good life and, and build up your good works in order to earn your way into heaven. It's easy to say, you know what, I can define what a good life is for myself. I'll just chase my own desires through life. That's easy. You can follow your own desires, never submitting to the will of God. And again, all of that is easy, but it's a path that leads to destruction. And in verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, 
you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, before we dig into this passage, one thing I want to offer you is, is an encouragement that this probably doesn't mean what you've always been taught that it means. And the reason I say that is because when I read this, and we'll see more of this in, in the next part of the passage, I always read this as Jesus is telling us, hey, all believers, listen up. You're going to be judged by your fruits. And if you're judged a certain way, you could be thrown into the fire. So be careful. That's how I always understood this passage. And I got to tell you, it didn't make me feel good. And so we need to recognize first, who is in view here? Who is Jesus addressing? Is he talking to all believers? I do think there's application for the idea that, that how we live our lives, we will give account for that. I don't mean to say that, we won't, that there's no meaning to how we live our lives. That's not what I'm saying. But this passage is not saying that. Because what he's doing here is he's addressing false teachers. That's who he's describing. And so, so then we go, well, why does Jesus go from this wide and narrow path into false teachers? What's the connection? Well, false teachers are ushers down the path of destruction. So he's telling us to watch out for the false teachers who would send us down that wide, easy path of destruction. And he says, watch out for them. Judge them and make sure that they are not false teachers. But how do we judge them? How can we tell? He says, look at their fruits. Look at their fruits and know whether or not they're false teachers. So then the question is, well, what does he mean by fruits? Because again, the common, easy reading of this passage would be, well, their fruit must be like their actions, right? It's like how they live their lives. It's their works. And, and, and the wider application then would be, be careful how you live your life because the fruit that you bear, will, you'll give account for that. And, and, and so you're going to be judged for how you live your life, right? Like that all would add up. But I submit to you, I, I do not believe that Jesus is saying that their fruit is their works, their actions. And here's why. Number one is Jesus is saying, hey, watch out for these wolves. I want you to look around and be discerning. Look out for wolves who come to you in sheep's clothing. They are disguised like you. And what would be their disguise? How would a wolf disguise itself like a sheep? It would act like a sheep, right? It would put on the sheep's clothing and act like a sheep. So if you're judging by their works, they're going to look like a sheep. It doesn't make sense to say, hey, watch out for these people who will disguise themselves like one of you by looking how they act. That doesn't make sense. You need to look at something else. The second problem with defining the word fruit as their works or their actions is that if we go forward a few chapters into Matthew 12, Jesus is going to again use the same analogy. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. I think Jesus very clearly says here that when I say their fruit, I'm not talking about their works, I'm talking about their words. And when we're talking about teachers, it's more specifically what they teach. It's their teaching. So Jesus is addressing in both of these passages teachers, Pharisees, right? Anyone who would claim to teach the word of God. So it's not a comment then about all Christians. It's talking about judging teachers by the words that they speak. 
And the reason is that if they're false teachers, if they're bad teachers, they're self-interested and they don't actually clearly and accurately communicate the word of God, then what they're doing is leading you down the path of destruction. And he says, watch out for them. The question then that we would have is, is okay, if that's what a bad teacher is, what is a good teacher? What does a good teacher look like? And, and when, I, when I see this analogy, and Jesus uh, uses this tree analogy, which actually is, is very present throughout the scriptures, it reminds me of this passage in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. I think a teacher who faithfully reads the Bible, accurately teaches the scripture, is one who views the scriptures as an authority in his life. Somebody who submits themselves to the scripture in such a way that they, they bend their will, they bend their understanding of God to scripture, not the other way around. Look at where a teacher is rooted. Are they rooted in the culture around them, the worldview of the culture around them? Do they look to culture and, and, and say, well, here's what everyone around me agrees is good, so let me make sure I can make the Bible say that too. Does he submit first to his own desire, to the culture around him, or does that person submit to the word of God? Does that teacher bend their lives to fit God's word? There's a lot of teachers out there, especially now, uh, this is far more prevalent with the, the existence of social media, lots of people presenting their ideas that they're teaching on God's word. And, and Many of them are self-interested, right? Many of them are, are, are out there just trying to teach so that they can gain an audience, gain a following. And they claim to teach God's word, but they don't do so accurately because they bend God's word to fit what they want it to say. They don't check it against the rest of scripture. And when we follow that kind of teaching, Jesus says it's gonna lead us to that path of destruction. He goes on in verse 21 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I'll tell you, when I read this passage when I was a young Christian, it scared me. It scared me to read Jesus saying that there's gonna be some people who stand before me and say, Jesus, we did things on your behalf. We worked for you. And Jesus is gonna look at him and go, I didn't know you. Get away from me. That gave me anxiety. I don't know if it gives you anxiety, but to think that Jesus uh, might tell these unsuspecting people who thought they'd lived good lives for him, he'd say, I don't know you. And I was scared. So if that's you, let me relieve your fears here. Because again, this is not a passage directed at all Christians for all situations as if to say, you know what, everybody listen up. If you're not bearing good fruit in how you live your life, you might be cast into the fire. If you're working hard to, to glorify my name, you better be careful because I just might tell you I don't know you in the end. That's not what he's saying here. 
Again, he's talking about false teachers. And and specifically in this instance, he's talking about those false teachers who would stand before the Lord wanting to enter the kingdom and on what basis? They say, Jesus, look at our works. So Jesus says, sure, you did all those works, but I didn't know you. And I think what Jesus is saying is that the life that I offer, I offer it purely on the basis of grace, not works. And so if you stand before Jesus and you say, Jesus, look how hard I worked to get here, he's going to say, but you missed the point. Because it's not about your works. It's about trusting me. And so Jesus says, not everyone gets in except those who do the will of my Father. Oh, so now they have to do something? Wait, isn't that works? Jesus says, nobody gets in unless you do the will of my Father. So you have to work? What's going on here? Well, let's go back to the question I asked earlier. What is God's will for you? It's to trust him, right? We go back to John chapter 6, verse 40, where here Jesus says, if you do the will of the Father, that's who gets in, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Doing the will of the Father here is not the works that you do. It's belief. It's trusting in Jesus. Jesus says, you don't get in on your works. You get in by trusting me. It's not about working to earn your way into the kingdom. It's about giving up yourself, surrendering to God and trusting him. Trusting that only what Jesus did on the cross will pay my way into the kingdom. And the cost of getting this wrong, as I did for much of my life, is that it can first lead us into a life of legalism. That we'll believe that if it is about all, all of our works, then I'm going to work really hard. I need to get in. And so I'm, I'm going to make sure that my works are adding up. And I'm going to be really guilty when I feel like I'm failing. But more than that, it just causes us to miss out on the life that Jesus offers us. That close fellowship with him. Because he wants us to live in daily dependence on him. These are passages that we've studied throughout this series, the Sermon on the Mount, and they're all, they're all pieces of this larger sermon, right? A sermon that, that covers a lot of topics, offers us a lot of truth. And in the end, I think it's, it's all unified, pointing us to this call of discipleship to live in this spiritual kingdom of God. And I think the passages that we read today, they offer us a piece of that picture. And I think what they're about is they're about knowing something, That if we have this information, then we can live the way that we're meant to live. We can navigate this life wisely. And so what this tells us is first that we need to know the Bible so that we can recognize false teachers. False teachers will appear to be Christians, maybe even good teachers, by their lives and their good works. The only way to tell if they're teaching a false gospel is by their words. And the only way to discern the lies in their words is to know the truth of Scripture. And so I would ask you, who do you give that platform to? Who do you allow to be a teacher of the Bible in your life? If you're here this morning, then at least in part, your answer to that question is, well, it's, it's you. It's the people on stage, right? And I, and I want you to know first that we take that very seriously. 
that all of us who get up here and, and teach the Bible from this stage, we, we spend a lot of time developing these sermons, and they go through multiple levels of scrutiny before they ever come up here. That, that the rest of the staff contributes to this process of refining this sermon and making sure that, that when we come up here, this is not just one person's perspective in such a way that, that we're just saying, hey, here's what I think it says, and, and here, take this. No, we're making sure that this matches the full counsel of God. We're careful to hone this message in such a way that we're not out of step with Scripture. Secondly, I would say that none of us that who come up here have the attitude, you know what, just trust me. So, like, when I say this, please don't question it, okay? If you can't understand it, that's on you, but don't question me. None of us have that attitude about this. In fact, if you ever hear something from the stage and you think that doesn't, doesn't sound like it lines up with Scripture, you are free to come up to us and, and have a conversation with it. Ask us about it. Let us know that, that maybe something sounded like it didn't quite match and you, you want to talk about that. I know some of you will take, take me up on that more than others. That's okay. And really, that's not a slide at all because, because some of the best conversations I've had over the years with students have been after I taught something and they had questions and they came up to me and they said, hey, you said this and I'm not sure I, I fully understand what you mean here. Can you, can you clarify that? Or, or this didn't sound like it matches up with Scripture and we have these fruitful conversations and that's iron sharpening iron. That's good and productive. But who do you give that platform to? Who else? What voices do you allow to teach the Bible to you? Because this is a stern warning to watch out for the wolves. And I would also caution you, make sure that the standard that you're using to measure those false teachers is the right standard. Because what you don't want to do is go around find, figuring out who you're going to allow to teach you the Bible by saying, well, do they make me feel good? Do they tell me what I want to hear? Do they affirm what I already believe? Do they let me live the life I want to live? That's a bad standard. Because there's going to be a lot of bad teachers that tell you what you want to hear. Instead, use the standard of God's word. Check what they say against the Bible. If it matches with scripture, then they're, they're probably a good teacher. If it doesn't, and you can talk to them about it, do that. But don't give them that platform. Next, we need to know the Bible so that you can live in line with, with God's design for your life. So you can live within God's design for your life. Because the call of discipleship is a difficult one. And the purpose is relationship with Jesus. And when we miss this, we live according to good works. We live in that legalistic way. And what we do is we miss the relational aspect of what God has offered us. And so how can this manifest in your life? What are your blind spots? Because sin happens at the intersection of desire and opportunity where our desire and the opportunity to sin happen, that's where we sin. That's where we're most vulnerable to the lies that lead us into temptation. And so when we're, we find ourselves in that moment, a moment of weakness, a moment of opportunity, and we're vulnerable to those lies, the only way to, to stop that cycle, the only way to combat a lie is with the truth. And so we need the word of God buried deep in our hearts and our minds so that in that moment of weakness, when the lies creep in and try to lure us into the darkness, the truth is there to overcome the darkness and keep us in the light. And finally, we need to know the Bible so that you can see Jesus for who he really is. Because if we're called to relationship, then Understanding and reading the Bible is how we will get to know Jesus more and more. 
And it becomes cyclical that when we know Jesus, we can follow him more closely. We can better obey his commands and live out this call of discipleship, which will take us deeper and deeper into this trusting relationship. And we'll do it over and over again. And so do you know God's word? Do you seek it out? Psalm 119 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. We can be really distracted. There has never been a time in human history where it's easier to get distracted. And I'm as vulnerable to that distraction as anybody. But we have to ask the question, what am I putting in my mind? Am I just distracting myself? Or am I laying a foundation of God's truth in my mind? So that I can not only live out the call of discipleship, but so that I can know who he is and draw closer to him. What are you putting in your mind? We don't want to be like that college version of me laying on our back with everybody pointing and laughing at us, wondering, how did I get here, right? We want the information that will allow us to navigate life well, and we find that in God's word. We can navigate this life wisely, the way that we were meant to live within our design when we know God's word. So when we understand the reality of these two paths, the path that leads to life, the path that leads to death, the narrow, difficult path, the wide and easy path, when we understand these, I think we'll we'll desire the one that leads to life, but we know it's difficult. But it's important for us to remember that our eternity, once we have trusted Jesus that first time, it's important to know that we never lose that. And so when we talk about the destructive path, we don't mean that we are eternally separated from him, but we do recognize that destruction means that we don't live in fellowship with the, the author of life, right? With our life source. So we want to draw close to him. We want to walk that path. There's abundant life to be experienced even here and now in fellowship with God. And to to experience that, we have to avoid walking that path of destruction. And we need then to know the word of God. So look to him, study his word, and follow him into life. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.